You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, Today, today is November 5th, 2023. In exactly one year to the day, citizens of the United States of America are going to be going to the polls for the next big national election. So today I thought I would preach a sermon. I've been planning this for a while. I, I want to preach a sermon this morning called Election Season and Your Soul. Now, right away, I want to put you at ease. We're not going to be discussing your various political views. So you can relax, take a deep breath, put your pitchforks away. (laughs) You have my word. Um, Really what I'm interested in is the last three words of this sermon title. We're going to be talking about election season and your soul. And our text today is going to be 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Let's look at it together. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just before we get into this, we want to pause. We want to consecrate this time to you right now. We As best we can, we put aside any lingering distraction, whether it's external or internal, to the best of our ability as an act of worship. We humble ourselves before you. May your spirit speak through these scriptures, illuminating us. And may your word be planted deep within our hearts. Let it sprout, bear fruit for your eternal kingdom. Speak to us. And may your agenda be established in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you today as a pastor. That is, as a shepherd of souls. That's really what a pastor is to be. A pastor is to be a shepherd of souls. I realize that uh, here in modern America, we tend to uh, see pastors alongside of other leaders. And we see them as uh, or sometimes pastors even see themselves through the lens of American business culture. So we, we, see, we see ourselves as uh, business entrepreneurs or leadership gurus or uh, experts in success in life or motivational speakers and all of that kind of thing. But that's really not the essence of what a pastor is to be. The New Testament vision of a pastor is to be a shepherd of souls. In fact, that's what the word means. That's literally what the word pastor means, a shepherd. So I want to talk to you today as a soul shepherd. And I want to help you to tend and care for the well-being of your soul, particularly over the next 12 plus months. 
Look again at uh, verse 11. And Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions. Everybody say passions. From the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The word passion has uh, it's undergone in recent times a remarkable makeover. From as far back as Plato and then with Augustine and then right up until present times, it may surprise you to learn that passion was almost always viewed entirely negatively. It was viewed as something inherently dangerous that you don't want to cultivate too much of in your life. In fact, it might surprise you to learn that in the, in the Bible, if you do a word search of the Bible for the word passion, in the Old Testament, it never occurs. And in the New Testament, we find the word passion cropping up fairly regularly, but always in a negative light. For the ancient Stoics, which was a school of philosophy that was very influential within early Christianity, the earliest Christians, Paul included, would have been quite sympathetic to Stoic philosophy. But the Stoics, for them, passion was the essence of sin. And they would use this illustration. They wanted you to imagine, picture in your mind, if you will, a charioteer. You know, this guy commanding this chariot, and he's got four or five different horses pulling this chariot. All of that's fine and good until the horses start getting out of control. They start running wild. And if the charioteer is not able to control those horses, then it's dangerous and even destructive. And people get hurt. The charioteer gets hurt. And you can see how that illustration would work. Well, for the ancient Stoics, who again were very influential in early Christianity, passions were horses that weren't under the control of the charioteer. And they had begun to run wild. Now, for modern people like you and me, one of the things that we struggle with that's very peculiar to us as moderns, ancient people did not struggle with this like we do, but one of the struggles we have as modern people is we struggle with boredom. We get bored. Ancient people did not get bored. We get bored. Some of you are bored right now. Elbow your neighbor. How dare you? We struggle with boredom. We don't like to be bored. And so because of that, like we have this instinct. We crave. We want some type of passion. We want some, some craziness in our life. We want something that at least, at least feels a little bit alive. And I understand that. That's, that's good so far as it goes. There's nothing in, inherently wrong with that. But let's not forget the wisdom of the ancients and the wisdom of our scriptures who saw passion as, as also inherently dangerous. There can be a dangerous side to passion of subjecting your soul to too much passion. I'll just mention a couple examples, but you can think of, for example, uh, the passion of sexual desire or the passion of anger. You know, these things have their place, but allowing too much of that into your soul can be very destructive, very damaging and harmful to your soul. And the primary symptom of a soul damaged by passion is restlessness and agitation. 
I'll say that again. The primary symptom of a soul damaged by passion, excessive passion, is restlessness and agitation. The natural state of a healthy soul is one of peace. You know, if you go to the doctor uh, for a checkup, the doctor's going to do a number of things to try to gain an overall assessment of your general health. So, for example, the doctor's going to take your temperature, and they're looking for it to be right around 98.6. The doctor's going to take your blood pressure, and they're looking for that to be within a certain range. They might look at your blood counts. Th these things are markers. They are indicators that gives the doctor an assessment of your overall general physical health. Well, as a shepherd of the soul, as a kind of doctor of the soul, what I'm telling you is that what we're looking for in your soul as an indicator of health is peace. If you're constantly agitated and restless, that's a symptom. It's not a cause, but it's a symptom of an unhealthy soul. And you know how it is with symptoms. We don't just want to treat the symptoms. You know, if you're like, man, I'm constantly agitated, I'm constantly anxious, I'm constantly agitated, you can take a chemical to mask that, but you're not really getting to the root cause, right? Well, passion is fine. You want some passion, but too much is a poison. It's a toxin to your soul. And when it comes to politics, these passions are most commonly inflamed by political media. Uh, recently, I, I watched uh, a documentary on the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. How many of you remember that from a few years ago, this big meltdown? It took place, there was a terrible earthquake followed by a tsunami off the coast of Japan that caused this major nuclear plant to begin to melt down, and it was just an awful, terrible situation. And it was very serious. And when this, when this thing was, was melting down, they had to send in workers into the building where the nuclear reactor was because they, they needed to do some things manually. And they had no choice. They had to do it. So they would send these workers uh, into this building, but they would, they would put on these anti-radiation suits. And they would go in and they would only stay in for 17 minutes at a time. Because it too much, after 17 minutes, it was too much of a lethal dose of radiation. So they would only go in for 17 minutes, then they had to come out. 17 minutes. That sounds about right to me. <laughs> I think anything more than 17 minutes a day being immersed in political media, and you are receiving lethal doses of radiation. You say, Ryan, somebody's got to do it. Okay, somebody's got to do it. Dear God, let's put them in radiation suits. Let's attach a rope to him and get out our stopwatch. Okay, Joe's in there watching Fox News or CNN. All right, all right, 17 minutes. Pull him out, pull him out, pull him out. And you th the thing about radiation is you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't smell it, you can't see it, but it's killing you. And I'm just telling you, our addiction to political rage through the mouths of TV pundits, it is killing us. Now, in our current political environment, and I'm talking mainly to Americans 
in November 2023, entering into another turbulent election season. It seems to me that the nuclear core is melting down because people are melting down. And in their anger, people are emitting a radiation that is quite deadly. And I mean that metaphorically, but it also applies quite literally. People are angry. And it's because the leaders of the political parties are angry. And the pundits on television are angry people. And angry people make poor shepherds for your soul. You say, Ryan, our, our, you, you know what? You got to understand our nation is in peril. I'm here to tell you, no, it's not. What does Peter say? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Well, Ryan, I'm not talking about that nation. Well, guess what? I am. And I'm here to tell you your nation is not in peril. If you've been baptized, and if it means anything to you, then Jesus is your Lord. He is your king. He is your president of presidents. Be still and know and trust and recognize that your supreme national allegiance belongs to Jesus and this new nation that he is forming from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Of course, then people say, well, Ryan, you're just being socially irresponsible. I say, au contraire. <laughs> to live by the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount makes a person the most socially responsible person in town. I'm not an anarchist. I just refuse to take my cues from angry politicians and pundits who are bent on telling me who to hate. If, if I will just go out the door of my house every day into the polis, into the public marketplace, being guided by blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of things being made right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, if, if that becomes the driving ethic of your life, I'm not going to worry about you being socially irresponsible. A polis, a city of, that's filled with people who are driven by that ethic, it's going to be just fine. And so to people who say, whose souls are being assailed by technology and partisan politics and passion, I believe that God would speak to us in this moment. And I think what God would have to say to you is be still and know that I am God. Right now, would you just close your eyes and maybe just sit up straight and take a deep breath? Why don't you just inhale a deep breath right now? Inhale. And now exhale. Just keep breathing deeply. And I want, to, I want you to hear God say to you right now in this moment, be still and know 
that I am God. I like to use that as a prayer exercise, and maybe you could take it with you at the office or wherever you go. Psalm 4610, just breathe and remind yourself. Hear, hear yourself speaking it out loud. Be still and know that I am God. The natural state of a healthy soul is one of stillness and peace. Too much flashing technology, too much loud politics, too much angry passion robs the soul of its peace. The soul becomes agitated. The soul becomes like a sea in a storm. An agitated soul tends to drift away from the knowledge of God. So be still and know that I am God. You can open your eyes, by the way. Now, throughout history, the great saints and sages, they've often been known to venture out into the stillness of the desert, literally, to find connection with God and to some degree with the earth itself. You think of uh, Moses. You think of Elijah, David. You think of John the Baptist. You think of Jesus, Paul. You may not be quite as familiar with those that are referred to as the desert mothers and fathers. In the third century, in the mid-200s, these were people who left the noise, the hustle and bustle of the city, and they ventured out into the Egyptian desert, started living very simply in caves, and their desire was to cultivate deep connection with God. And then having done that, they found that they were bringing their souls into a place where they were now able to, in a healthy and helpful way, to connect with others and then to help other people connect with others. And they, end, they ended up becoming uh, some of the first examples of what I would refer to today as doctors of the soul. Because words started to trickle out. People started to hearing, they started hearing about these folks out in the desert. And they started going out to them. And the commentators at the time, they say that uh, the desert ended up becoming a city. Because people were finding out, man, there are these men and women out there in the desert in these caves. And they've fostered and nurtured this deep connection with God. And they've gained this profound wisdom that can help me with my life. And so they would flock out to these people in the desert to learn from these wisdom teachers, these Christians who had gone out into the desert to be still and to know that the Lord, He is God. Now, what about us in this room? Because I'm going to venture to say, most of you here or watching or listening, most of you, it's not going to be practical for you. The idea to uh, sell all of your possessions and move out into a cave in the San Gabriel Mountains, maybe that's not going to be a pragmatic decision for you. Maybe you ought not to do that, actually. Your spouse might not be excited about it. But what can we do uh, to nurture and to foster peace and stillness in our soul in the midst of a society at chaos? And I want to talk to you for just a moment at the end here. This, conclusion, this will be the conclusion of my sermon. I want to talk to you just a bit about the kind of prayer 
that can help us to do this. There is a kind of prayer that springs out of ourself where we know what needs to be done and God becomes a means to use to that end. God is simply a means. And that kind of prayer reinforces wrong assumptions that are already resonant within an unhealthy soul and you just end up recycling your own issues. You don't really make any real um, progress spiritually. Nothing really changes because the whole focus of your attempt at prayer is about changing something external to yourself. You assume, you assume that what needs to change is something out there. I need to change these people. I need to change this situation. I need to change this community. I need to change, uh, we need to change this nation. We need to change the world. Win the world for Jesus. And so the total content of our prayer is all about changing something external to ourselves. We see prayer as a means to shape the world according to our own agenda. So you're kind of like the engineer of a train and you're in front of a dashboard and so prayer becomes all about turning dials and flipping switches and pulling levers and pressing buttons and God is just the great power that makes the whole thing go. But in reality, prayer is something that in, within your control and manipulation so that you can shape the world according to your agenda, which you assume is blessed by God. Instead of that kind of praying, what we need is formative prayer. Because the primary purpose of prayer is not to get what you want. The primary purpose of prayer is to be properly formed in Christ's likeness. That's not just an idea that I have. That's not an opinion I hold. That is a deep, deep, settled conviction. In other words, it's your own soul that is the object to be influenced by prayer. It's not the primaries. It's your soul that needs to be influenced by prayer. Now, of course, within your prayer time, you always can make your own pains and petitions known to the Lord. You can pray about those things that are on your heart. I'm not taking that away from you. As I teach on prayer all the time in our prayer workshops and elsewhere, you know, I, I, I make sure I emphasize that. There's a time to just talk to God and tell him what's on your heart and pray about those things that are burdening you. But what I am going to tell you is that if that's the total content of your prayer, then there's no formation happening. There may be uh, this cathartic experience where you're, yes, you're casting your burdens upon the Lord. You're taking those things that are haunting you and your place. So there's, maybe it's relieving some tension and some anxiety, and that's a good thing so far as it goes. But if that's the entirety of your prayer time, then there's no real deep formation happening. There's no change occurring within you because everything's being directed outward and you are left in charge of your own prayer. I've discovered, I've come to the conclusion that the formation of my soul is way too important for me to leave up to myself. Left to myself, I am, I am incapable of forming myself in Christ's likeness. I need the wisdom and help of others. I need the help of Jesus, first and foremost. I need the help of the church, the entire church, global, historic. I need the wisdom of the saints and sages who have blaze this Jesus trail for centuries before me. I need, a, I need their wisdom. I need the wisdom of the Scriptures. I need it all if I'm going to be formed properly. And so what I'm talking about is learning to pray like this. First of all, have some set times of prayer. Have, have a set time of prayer. 
Don't just simply say, ah, I'll just pray whenever I feel like it, because I'll promise you this. First of all, that's, again, that's emerging out of a self-centered place. I'm going to pray when my, myself feels like it. And then eventually, you may do it a few times, and it'll taper off, because the less you pray, the less you're going to feel like praying until you get to a crisis. Now, if you, if you come to a point where you feel like praying, I'm not telling you, no, no, don't pray. No, go ahead and do it. Pray. But what I'm, what I'm saying to you is have a set time. Have a set time, have a set place of prayer. And then when you pray, again, yes, there's the expressing of your wants and your desires. You're free to do that as much as you want to do that. But what I want to teach you is to learn to do that within the context of formative praying. Surround your spontaneous praying with formative prayer where you're praying not something that just comes out of yourself, a self-expression, but you're praying something that's been given to you. So, for example, pray the psalm for the day. This is something we emphasize a lot here at Village Church. We take the book of Psalms and we pray the psalms one a day. You'll always find it at the bottom of the backside of our bulletin. The psalm for the day today is Psalm 9. And then tomorrow it'll be Psalm 10. Tuesday it'll be Psalm 11. And then once we get to January 1st, that's when we hit the reset button. We start over with Psalm 1, and they go right on through, and it's just a big cycle. And you can always stay current with the bulletin. But that's what really the Psalms are for. We, we don't just simply study the Psalms or even read the Psalms. We pray the Psalms. This is, a, this is, our, this is the prayer book of the Judeo-Christian religion. This is, this is how the early Christians engaged the Psalms. They prayed the Psalms. But don't do it like this. Don't say, okay, I'm going I'm, I'm to wake up today. I'm going to find a Psalm that expresses how I feel right now. Don't do it like that. Why? Because the purpose of praying the Psalms is not to express how you feel. Again, that's a very self-centered approach. The purpose of praying the Psalms is to feel what they express. And if you come to a prayer workshop, you'll hear me expound upon why that's very important. I think our next one is either in January or February. Uh, you can go on our website and find that out and even sign up for a prayer workshop if you haven't already. So pray the psalm for the day. And then in addition to that, you might pray other psalms. Like every day I pray the entire 23rd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then I also pray parts of Psalm uh, 91. You should pray the Lord's Prayer. The disciples approach Jesus and say, Rabbi, teach us how to pray. And I want to emphasize what Jesus does. He doesn't do what a lot of modern teachers on prayer do today. And he doesn't just tell them, eh, just talk to God. Eh, just express yourself to God. Just talk to God. Uh, there's a time and a place for that. I'm not taking that away. But notice what Jesus does. He actually gives them a prayer. He gives them a prayer to pray. He says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. And so with deep intentionality, allow these words to form and shape you. You're not just doing this in a rote, repetitious, mindless way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name that came to come. No, it's not, about, it's not about just getting through it. You're letting these words absorb and shape and form your soul. So pray the Lord's Prayer. I, I, I encourage you to do that. And then what I like to do after I pray the Lord's Prayer, as it was originally given, is I'll, I'll pray it one more time, but this time I'll kind of couch it in my own language. I'll put it in my own words, and I'll, I'll play with it. I'll stretch it out a little bit. So, for example, instead of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, I, I, might, I might say something like this. God, you are so beautiful, marvelous, full of beauty and mystery and wonder, high and lifted up 
instead of your kingdom come, your will be done, I might pray, Lord, may your vision for human life, for human society, may your vision, your desires, your values begin to be absorbed into my very being, into my church, into the community of the saints worldwide. May we absorb your kingdom values and your kingdom vision. May it, became, may it become manifest in our lives within our faith communities. Here is in heaven. You see what I'm doing? I'm just putting it in my own terms and uh, making it my own, but sticking to the, the bones of, of the Lord's Prayer. And then every week, every week here at Village, we always give you the prayer for the week. And uh, we always close our service with a prayer for the week. This is the one that we'll be praying in just a few moments when we close the service. We're going to pray this together. These, these prayers that you see on the screen, they're on the back of your bulletin as well. These are uh, really rich prayers that have centuries of wisdom behind them. And so we'll be praying in just a moment together. You're stead oh, put it back, put it back. <laughs> Too quick. All right. Your, your steadfast love endures from age to age, O living God. For in Christ, you tenderly care for your people. Instruct us in your way of humble service that we may imitate his saving deeds who humbled himself for our salvation and is now exalted with you in splendor forever and ever. Amen? Ryan, I don't like the idea of praying somebody's prayer that they wrote. I think I should write my own prayer. You, have you ever noticed, like, we never think that way about singing on Sundays. We always sing somebody else's words, and I never hear anybody complain. Ryan, why don't we just sing our own words? Let's just, let's just right now, just sing your own song, sing your own words. I guarantee you, you'd like that for about five seconds. And you're like, put those words back on the screen. But you see, these words, the words of these prayers, they are well-crafted biblically rich, theologically sound, and they are time-tested prayers for the purpose of your formation. Take this prayer. Pray it every day this week. There may be on Tuesday a certain phrase of that prayer that really resonates with you, and then on Wednesday another phrase, something, something else that the Holy Spirit might put the finger on, whatever it is. But just let the Holy Spirit go to work through the trellis of this prayer, and you're going to become a fruitful grapevine. Now, if, you're, if all you're interested in is just shaping the world according to your agenda, then these prayers aren't going to be any good to you. But if you're interested in being formed properly as a follower of Jesus, these prayers are invaluable. So, just a few examples of formative prayers. If you go to the prayer workshop, you'll hear more on that. But, but now, from within the context and the practice of formative prayer, now I advise you, now is the time to pour out your soul before the Lord with your own words, talk to God, play your little guitar solo, improvise, say whatever's on your heart. But see, what I do is, and this is what I encourage you to do, when I get into my office to pray and I sit in my chair, I'm sitting there and I'm praying, but you know, 15 minutes, about 15 minutes has gone by before I ever just say my own words to the Lord. Before I ever just talk to God, I've already gone through the, these formative prayers because the most important thing for me to do at the beginning of the day is to get my soul still before God and to continue that ongoing project of allowing God in the Holy Scriptures to form my soul so that when I do begin to speak my own prayer to the Lord, all of the anxiety, all of the egoism, all of the manipulation has, has been drawn out of my soul 
So now I'm ready to pray in a healthy way. I want to close with this. Daniel, would you come? I want to close with this. I want to read to you. I normally don't like to read from the platform because people have a tendency to zone off, so don't do that. <laughs> but I, I, I just, this is so beautifully written. And I want to read to you a very short uh, story. And it comes from the prologue of John Ortberg's book, Soul Keeping. And it's called The Keeper of the Stream. There once was a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far above anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had been hired long ago, so long ago that now no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water. But his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair and taxes to collect and services to offer and giving money to an unseen, unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury that they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went unattended. Twigs and branches and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm waste turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. For a time, no one in the village noticed, but after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play in it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, the money was found, the old man was rehired. After yet another time, the springs were cleaned, the stream was pure, children played again on its banks, illness was replaced by health, the swans came home, and the village came back to life. The life of a village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul and you are the keeper. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.